Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Good morning, Mo. It's been a, a busy week for me. I was uh, covering the geriatric trauma service, so I'm a little, uh, I'm a little in need of of some Joe. So I've got mine. I've got mine. I've got mine. <laughs> and we'll uh, we'll get our guest uh, one of these uh, after after we uh, complete this uh, podcast. But uh, so the so the topic today is uh, cannabinoids and research. And let me just tell you what prompted my suggestion of this topic. So in the the June 2nd copy of the journal, uh, we have a a basic science manuscript. And some of the listeners might be aware that we we do publish 10 to 15 percent of basic science manuscripts in the journal. And basically our our litmus test is it has to be clinically relevant. Well, this one is really clinically relevant. So the title of this is Effect of Postoperative Analgesic Exposure to the Cannabinoid Receptor Against WIN55 on Osteogenic Differentiation and Spinal Fusion in Rats. Well, you know, not many of our readers treat rats, but they do treat uh, patients. And it's been increasingly apparent to me that our patients are using cannabis products in one form or another to either deal with pain preoperatively or postoperatively. So what this manuscript is about is a, it's a rat spinal model looking at fusion. And uh, as you know, we're always concerned about bone healing with any drugs we give postoperatively, particularly with spinal fusion. And there's been a lot of interest in material published on non-steroidals and their impact on this phenomenon. So these investigators studied the effect of one of the byproducts of of cannabis and basically showed that it didn't have any effect on spinal fusion. So the whole reason for discussing this topic is what kind of research is being done in the area of cannabis byproducts on uh, orthopedic uh, pain management pre and postoperatively. And Mo, I know Mac has got a big research profile on this, so I'll let you introduce our guest. Great. I mean, you know, it, it's it's very apropos, and uh, I have a colleague and a longtime a friend in Jason Bussa. Who, Jason, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll let you introduce your specific qualifications. You have many, but the potential interest here is is that his role in leading a center for medicinal cannabis research, and I think that's particularly important given the fact that we are in or have been what seems to be the gold rush of uh, you know companies coming in. Uh, with lots of promises. Uh, and the question is, you know, are these promises likely to be met? So, uh, Jason, I wonder if you mind just giving us a little bit of a background, and then I'll follow up with a question for you. Yeah, of course. So great to be uh, with both of you this morning. Uh, so as Mo said, uh, I'm Jason Bossa, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of Anesthesia at McMaster, the uh, Director of the National Pain Center, uh, and the Associate Director for the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. Jason, why is cannabis so popular right now in the world of managing pain, sleep, anxiety? Why has it risen as quickly as it has? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think one of the main reasons is increasing awareness of the limitations of opioids 
In North America, opioids are commonly used for managing both uh, post-surgical and chronic pain. And increasingly, the, the effectiveness has been questioned. Better emerging evidence has suggested they're less effective than were hoped in some cases, and that many alternatives are equally effective, uh, but do not have the risk of rare yet catastrophic uh, adverse events. Uh, cannabis, on the other hand, has become increasingly available. It's been increasingly legalized. I'm not sure of the exact numbers in the states, but I believe it's around 33 states plus the District of Columbus now allow for medical cannabis. And there's around 10 to a dozen states that allow for use of recreational cannabis legally. At the federal level, it's still illegal. So there are some challenges. In Canada, we're the first G7 country to legalize cannabis for both medical and recreational purposes. So it's, it's increasingly available, and there's a lot of claims out there, as you mentioned. And now the question is, to what degree can the evidence back up those claims? Where can we, can we say with confidence that cannabis has established a role, and where do we need more work? So maybe you can start off, if you don't mind, with what are the most popular claims for the proponents of using medicinal cannabis? So it, it varies. You can certainly go to websites and find claims that it can you know, reduce solid tumors and uh, treat MS and reduce pain and improve sleep and uh, you know, modify anxiety and help treat addiction. So there's all kinds of claims out there. Where the evidence currently is pointing us, there seems to be a reasonable evidence base for cannabis in the management of chronic pain. We have probably the best evidence in terms of using a cannabinoid called CBD or cannabidiol for the management of uh, certain types of uh, pediatric seizure disorders. There were a couple of large randomized control trials that came out in the New England Journal in the last uh, five years or so. And again, it's, it's not a panacea, it's not a cure, but it did show the ability to reduce both the intensity uh, and the frequency of certain types of seizure disorders. So those are areas where we probably have some of the best evidence there is uh, some emerging evidence that it may have some role in improving sleep. But again, we have a lot of short-term studies and the observational data at least suggests the possibility that long-term use of cannabis might impair sleep, although the short-term effects might be to help. So we have a lot of uncertainty right now. And one of the reasons for that is it's been very, very difficult to do research on an illegal product. So that's slowly starting to change. And I very much agree the sort of potential for certain, you know, cannabis or cannabis or certain types of cannabinoids to improve post-operative recovery is certainly enticing. And I know our group right now, we've received funding and approval to look at perioperative use of cannabidiol in patients undergoing total knee replacement surgery. And we're going to be exploring whether or not it allows them to substitute uh, opioids and whether or not it can reduce the rate of persistent post-surgical pain which occurs in somewhere around 20 to 25% of knee replacement patients. Yeah. So Jason, I've got a question for you. I was uh, familiar enough with the governmental approval in Canada to know that there was a, like a gold rush of producers getting in, into the production of these materials. And how is it that you can work with these producers? Are there actual groups that are producing the byproducts of cannabis that are interested in helping to fund this research, or is it all through the Canadian government? So it's a challenge. In Canada, the challenge is at present, Health Canada will allow the sale 
of cannabis or cannabinoids to any adult in Canada with an internet connection and a valid credit card. To you to actually explore it for research purposes, there's a higher bar. So in order to sell to patients in Canada, products need to be you know, adherent to something called good production practices. That's the same type of criteria they use for vitamins and supplements and nutraceuticals. In order to use it for clinical trials, Health Canada has, has decided that it has to adhere to the same standards as prescription medicines. So good production practices are not sufficient. It has to be adherent to something called good manufacturing practices. That means that it's bioidentical from batch to batch. They also require preclinical data in two animal models to demonstrate that it does not have cancer-causing effects or the potential to damage the developing fetus. Well, if you're a company in Canada and you need to reach a much lower bar to sell your product than you do to actually study it, I, I think you know where this is going. The companies have not made products that by and large are GMP compliant. So we've been in a real holding pattern despite this gold rush for two years, whereby increasing number of Canadians are using these products for all kinds of purported benefits, but we haven't been able to get clinical trials going. So this study that I alluded, that I mentioned uh, just a you know, minute ago, it took us two years to get approval from Health Canada to start to pursue this trial. We haven't started recruiting a single patient yet, but that's been a real challenge in terms of doing the research. So there was a gold rush. There's massive interest. There's huge numbers of companies and licensed producers that have sprung up. But the promise of pursuing research has been sort of frustrated quite a bit in terms of clinical trials up to this time. Right. So you've got a real uh, information challenge in getting to the legislators uh, to understand this issue. Uh, so I'm sure you've got people at McMaster working on that and across the province, I would guess. Yeah. And, and with respect to funding, I think that the, the industry uh, partners out there that we've been talking with, they are going to look to where the opportunities are. So if they see opportunities in terms of expanding their market by getting clinical indications for certain you know, types of treatments, they'll pursue that. Uh, if the market instead is very much more towards the recreational side, they're probably going to pursue that. Uh, but that's also been a challenge. So again, with all these companies that came in, there's been a lot of consolidation in the last six to 12 months because the migration from the illicit market to the legal market has only been about 14%. So it hasn't been realized. Now, in terms of clinical applications, Health Canada tracks the number of, of individuals in Canada that are licensed to access medical cannabis. Now, in 2015, that was around 23,000 Canadians. Right now, it's closer to 400,000. So it's growing quite a bit. And we know from surveys that we've done, there are a lot of individuals that are using cannabis for dual purposes. So they use it for recreational and medicinal purposes, and they are very often not registered by Health Canada. So the true numbers of Canadians are much larger. To put this in dollar terms, Veterans Affairs Canada, which well reimbursed medical cannabis for therapeutic purposes, last year they spent a little over $100 million reimbursing for veterans in Canada. The dominant condition for which they're reimbursing, and I know that this is the same in the US, is for management of chronic pain. So there is a market out there. It's a market that's growing. And we do have a number of industry partners that are interested in providing product possibly in funding, but to date, our funding has come from government agencies. 
Yeah, so can I ask just one more question and I'll throw the baton back to Mo, but are you aware, are the research complications the same in, in the states? Well, it's, it's interesting in the states because it is, you know, cannabis remains illegal at the federal level. So when Canada first legalized cannabis for both, you know, in, in October 2018, we opened the floodgates. We said it is now legal not only for therapeutic purposes, but also for recreational. We had a lot of companies from the states coming to meet with us and say, you know, we really see an opportunity in Canada for research. Uh, we're, we're nervous about what might happen in the states because of the federal issues around cannabis. We want to invest in research here. And unfortunately, we weren't able to actualize any of those opportunities. So what we're now seeing is, you know, the, the, uh, the state of California, for example, recently announced a multi-million dollar investment in cannabis research. They've started up a cannabis research institute at the University of California. So I think that there is increasing interest and appetite for cannabis research in the U.S. It depends on a state by state basis based on where it's legal and where it's not. And I think, you know, unless we can sort of get our regulatory process in shape here in Canada to support clinical trials, we might see that a lot of that business ends up going back to the States, even though we had initial interest coming here a couple of years ago. Wow. You know, if we unpack what you've just said, so you said lots about, you know, uh, sort of the, you know, the larger umbrella that is research and how we're going to get to the right evidence and how we're going to ultimately make real evidence-based decisions, which is all, you know, impressive and good. And I appreciate you taking those, the, the time and energy to do that. But at the individual level, let's say, you know, your patient who's either, you know, who's had an injury or post-fracture repair and you've got pain and you're worried about the opioids, your post-total knee replacement, you've got pain, you're worried about, you know, the opioid crisis, you're aware of it. It's been, you know, it's been highly, highly publicized and lots and lots of concerns. These individuals, at least in our own informal surveys, Jason, I think it probably confirms what you've been doing as well is there's a lot of patients, you know, somewhere between, depending on the group, one in two to one in three that are self-medicating uh, with cannabis for, uh, I sleep better, I get less anxiety, and actually, you know, the pain's better, and I'm not taking all those pain meds I used to take. When you see that, and you see the process right now, like from the patient perspective, is there any patient-related research that's going on? And, and let me just preface it by one more point, which is typically, Someone comes in, you say, okay, this is your prescription. Let's say it was an opiate. This is the prescription. Here's the dose. They go someplace, they get the actual dose, and they're, and they're pretty well guaranteed they're getting what they've been prescribed. The way anecdotally patients describe the experience, which is you go, a prescribing doc who prescribes cannabis will give you a script and says, well, here, you know, uh, this is what you can get. Here's the dose I think you recommend. Go to the marketplace, check out a bunch of things. Let us know how it goes. How is that ever going to get improved when it's a gong show, basically, for a patient perspective and saying, where do I go? Can you imagine a situation where you would give someone a heart medication, a beta blocker and say, you know, there's 15 different providers. Go try a beta blocker. See what happens. Come back to us and let us know how things go. Right. That would never be allowed. How is that ever going to get changed from the patient you know, experience point of view? Because they're very, very frustrated um, in this environment. Yeah, so you've raised a, a lot of important issues there. So one is this issue about substitution for prescription medications, and that's an area of keen interest. There's been a number of observational studies, before and after studies in the U.S. when states have legalized either recreational or medicinal cannabis, where they have seen 
decreased use of certain types of prescription medicines. And typically it is pain medications, including opioids. It is medications for anxiety and medications for sleep. This has led investigators to think, is this uh, you know, sort of causal? Are we actually seeing substitution effects when people get access to an alternative? What's interesting is if you look at the recent UK NICE guidelines, which were published in 2019, they reviewed four randomized control trials that were published where they gave patients that were using opioids access to medicinal cannabis. They didn't find any decreased use. And on that basis, they concluded there was not a substitution effect. But there's a huge problem with that conclusion. If you read those four studies carefully, the investigators told patients not to modify their dose of opioids. So they, they concluded there wasn't a substitution effect when the trials were completely inappropriate for making that conclusion. If you go to the observational literature, which we've done, there are eight studies that have explored this. So you take patients with chronic pain, they're using opioids, you provide access to medicinal cannabis. In those studies, you do see a substitution effect. When you pool it, it's a reduction of around 20 to 25 milligrams morphine equivalent per day. Now that's observational data. So we have low certainty in it, but it does suggest there's some potential and promise out there that we now need to look at in properly designed randomized controlled trials. Lots of survey evidence with patients telling us they're doing substitution. We need to understand if this is causal. Now, the other major point that you mentioned is what is going on with this product, right? <laughs> it's like saying, you know, I want to get some pain relief and you direct your patient, well, go to the forest and find a willow tree and start <laughs> chewing on the bark or something, right? It makes no sense. But this is what's happening. So we got a, we got a lot of problems. Cannabis is not, a, is not a specific manufactured drug. It's a product. Now, one of the main problems is if you look at what people are using, both in uh, Canada and the U.S. in terms of cannabis, they are largely acquiring dried flower product. Now, this means that they're, they're inhaling it, they're smoking it, or they're vaping it. Well, guess what they're using in every clinical trial to manage chronic pain that we've looked at? They're using oral formulations. They're using drops and sprays and capsules, and in some cases, topical applications. Why would they do this? Well, because you, you have to accept a, a whole host of pulmonary harms if you're inhaling your medicine. So why are we directing patients to go out and inhale toxins and particulate matter as a way of delivering this product instead of taking it in through sprays and capsules and tablets and maybe even topical preparations? So there's a big disconnect. And the other problem is you're right, because, you know, in Canada, cannabis does not have a, unless it's a synthetic, right? There are some synthetics out there. That's not what people are predominantly using. So if it's a non-synthetic cannabis product, it does not have a drug identification number. You can't prescribe it. You authorize it. So exactly as you said, the clinician will say, and by the way, the clinician that received no training on this during their medical school whatsoever, they're like, well, you're interested, uh, go and sort of see what you think. And, you know, I think you should maybe try something that has high CBD and low THC to avoid some of the psychotropic effects. So go see what you can find. And then they'll go out to a dispensary and they'll simply find a product that they think is somewhat similar to what their clinician told them they should try. Well, how much should they try? How frequently should they use it? There's a lot of gaps in terms of treating this like we would a typical prescription medication. And we recently published a qualitative study where we spoke to family physicians in Ontario and said, what do you think about medicinal cannabis? 
And by and large, they said, patients are increasingly asking of us about it, but we don't have the training. We can't prescribe it. I'm not sure how to tell people to dose this. I'm not quite sure about drug interactions, right? I mean, it's metabolized through the cytochrome P450 system, which is a common route for many prescription medications. And so they want guidance and they want direction. Well, to do that, you need research. And to do research, we need to overcome some of these regulatory challenges that are out there. So lots of challenges out there, but it's a great opportunity for more research because patients are interested and clinicians are interested. And if we don't give them better information from the evidence, then anecdote is going to become you know, the rule of the day. Very good. Uh, yeah, Jason, you've obviously committed a big part of your career in the past few years into addressing this. So if you were to outline the, the steps, the order in which things need to happen to empower a good research effort to study this, what are the steps that need to take place to get this done properly? Yeah, so I think what we need to do is to learn what we can from the observational data about the kinds of products that appear to be most promising. Um, we need to find products that are being produced reliably. So we know that, that it's the same from, from batch to batch to batch, uh, consistent enough. There's a wonderful story about Epidiolex, for example, in the United States, where they actually, you know, they have a phytocannabinoid. It's derived from a plant. It's a CBD, almost pure extract. And you know what you're getting, you know, so you can dose it very, very precisely. And it was the first FDA approved cannabis based medicine in the U.S., so you need a consistent, reliable product. You need to know where you're going to look to try to get something that you want to explore in a trial because you have lots of observational data suggesting it's promising. Then you need to provide this to patients in such a way that's going to allow for the individual experience. And if you're looking at a chronic condition, so if you're looking at chronic pain, you're looking at chronic anxiety, I'd really like to see an open label run-in phase to these trials because we know that not everyone's going to get a benefit. We know that some people are going to experience adverse events that they find unacceptable to continue. If you were seeing a patient in, in your real world practice, you wouldn't prescribe them a medication and say, try it for two weeks. And they, they came back and said, it's not helping and I have terrible side effects. You wouldn't say, well, stick with it. You'd say, well, we're going to try something else. So I'd like to see, you know, again, an open label run-in phase to try to identify individuals that are likely to see more benefit than harm. Then I'd like to see them followed for sufficient periods of time. When we look at the average duration of follow-up in all the trials that have been done on chronic pain, it's about a month, right? It's nothing. There's nothing that's followed patients for, you know, six months or even longer. So long-term follow-up, open label run-in phase, and capture outcomes that are important to patients, right? So it's going to be specific to the condition, of course, but if you could pull all those things off, then I think we're going to get the kind of evidence that we need to help clinicians help their patients to make decisions that are going to be uh, consistent with their values and preferences. Jason, on that note, I will uh, thank you again. I think, I think you've set up a, a very nice roadmap for where we have to go. And we look forward to having you back to share with us sort of, you know, the startup of, of this trial that you plan. I, I, I do hope it doesn't take you two more years to get this thing started up. But, uh, but when you do, uh, we'll be getting back to hear more from you. Um, also, for our listeners and uh, viewers, you know, please make sure if you've got ideas, you've got concepts, you can certainly uh, reach out to us. Uh, Mark, you can give them the, uh, the email address but I, and maybe give a few final closing words. Or so, Joe, at jvjs.org uh, is the way to get in touch with us. And 
Jason, uh, uh, your uh, energy for this topic is impressive, uh, despite the huge hurdles uh, at the regulatory level. And uh, I, I hope you can keep it up. I sense that uh, you're a man on a mission, uh, and we are we're we're grateful that you took the time to educate us in the orthopedic community on this topic. And like Mo said, let's do this again in a year and and and, and see where where you are with the process. So, and uh, as Christina will make sure you get a Ortho Joe mug. Uh, we appreciate your uh, your insight and your wisdom today. Great. Thanks so much for having me on.